You're listening to the Music Interval Theory Podcast with TC and Frank. Hello and welcome to another fantastic episode in the Music Interval Theory Podcast. Today I'm sharing a very special episode and that is the audio replay of a session that we've had with the Meta community about how to write long-form content. And I quickly want to point out that there is a PDF available in the free Composers Toolkit. So if you have access to this toolkit, just go to that content piece and download the PDF for all the great tips and tricks that we all share in this session. It's going to be a fantastic shortcut. So let's jump right into the discussion about how to write long-form compositions. How to approach longer compositions. It's not as easy as it seems, maybe, because just write more music. That, that would be the simple solution, but that is not the answer, obviously. <laughs> if it was that simple, then everybody would write longer pieces that are actually great, which is not the case. What would you consider long-form content, really? What is a long composition to you? I would say anything for two and a half minutes, I think. I think two and a half would be the minimum. Because I, I, I sometimes struggle with when I'm writing some of the exercises in my sort of ancient way. I kind of stick to A, B, A, but that's not always that appropriate. And I just wondered what other methods people were using other than that pad to get that kind of duration of a piece. I see. You know, the form is absolutely a big part of that, I believe, what you just mentioned. So I totally agree with that, of course. But Claudio, what do you think? What is a long composition? Uh, I know that you are working right now for this uh, play and you wrote some fantastic music for that. So do, do you consider these pieces long compositions? No. I wrote a suite these uh, 50 minutes in five parts and uh, a string quartet that last 30 minutes in four parts and now I'm writing another one so that's for me is long but it's a composite piece if you want because there are more movement for a symphony 10 minutes means for a movement is 40 minutes more or less what the romantic symphony are I know that, TC, you approached some pretty long compositions over the last few years, not to mention Planet Nine is, you know, the first example, but you, I know you, you've written a lot more long pieces outside the Planet Nine composition suite and everything. I believe I know the answer, but still, please um, chime in and, and <laughs> tell us what your approach is. Okay. I wish I was more um, able to be organized at times, but I sort of look, look at it as a conversation and or storytelling. I know that that's a, a big focus. So, you know, there's a difference between a short story and a novel. And so it's similar to that. So if I want to tell a short story, uh, I'd say I got up early and I walked to the back door and opened the door and let the dog out. And I realized I didn't pick up the paper from yesterday. So I went and got the paper and brought it back in, waited for the dog to come, sat down and had coffee and read the paper. That's a short story. If you wanted to make that longer, you would want to go into what you read in the paper or 
what the dog actually did outside. You know, the dog was outside for too long. I had to go look for him, and he was chasing a squirrel. And that's the last thing I wanted to do is get exercise early in the morning. To me, I have to look at it as the conversation. And when you're in a conversation with somebody, you sense when you've said enough. If you don't, you're boring, and then they don't want to talk to you anymore. So if you want to write a long piece, I picked Planet Nine because I like space and I like Elon Musk. And so it was an interesting topic. And I tried to tell first the story of what it would be like if I was an astronaut, an older astronaut, and I had a family, and, and the family lived in a nice little house, a beautiful little neighborhood, and I still loved my wife, but the kids were gone, and I was, I, I was accepted by NASA to go on the first trip to Mars, and I wasn't going to come back. And all the feelings I felt for my wife, and she was supportive, but it was really hard to leave her, and it was hard for her. And I remembered the sidewalk where the kids wrote chalk, jumping jack ch chalk marks when they were kids and growing up, and all the things that you would do. So I thought about that before I was writing. And so the first section of Planet Nine is preparing to say goodbye. So then the next section ends, starts with the astronaut daydreaming and thinking about stuff. And so you could come up with a million different things. So that could have been a very long, long form. But I wanted to, wanted just to say enough because I probably because I'm lazy and I didn't feel like writing four 20-minute pieces. So I wrote four or five-minute pieces. And so I wanted to get from him and his emotion remembering the kids, remembering the dog, remembering all the, the stuff they had and saying goodbye to his wife, which is the most important thing. And him walking to the, the car that was sent by NASA and looking back at his wife. And that's how that ends. The piece ends there. The next is the flight. Remember, they're going to Mars. So the, the flight is, they're all asleep in the flight. <laughs> The flight is all automatic for a big part of it, but he's the first guy to wake up, first astronaut to wake up. And he's by himself, and he's, he's awake, and he's looking out this bay window, and it's amazing. And so then I started thinking, well, how would that feel? And there'd be little stuff happening over here and over there, and stars, and you'd be just in a, a zone of, wow, look at this great creative place. Wow, how is this all made? You know, and then everybody wakes up and one by one, and then pretty soon they're having their meals and they're talking and they're laughing. And then it gets to where they tease one another and there's a chase. They're chasing each other around the spaceship. And so then it gets to the landing. That's the next section. And that's where they're actually in view of the planet Mars and they're going to land on the planet Mars. And all the different things that could happen, that the music, I hope the music describes the landing. And now they're going to get out of the spaceship and walk on Mars and just go out in a short explanation. I like science fiction and sort of drama and theater and all that sort of stuff. So I described where they would be walking in this terrain on Mars and something would 
pass out like a shadow, but they weren't sure what, what it was. It was just be a shadow. And the shadow would come zipping by and then it'd be gone and they didn't know. And then pretty soon it happened again more and more. And what it ended up being was they were on Mars, but we call it the planet of souls. So this is where souls go to really figure out which direction they're going for whatever their next stage is. So I didn't really make it Mars. I made it planet nine. So it's an unknown planet. But that's, I was thinking Mars all the time because that's what Elon Musk is doing. It's planet nine. So it's a planet of souls. And any planet with a lot of life on it, there's good life and bad life. We have good people and bad people. And so there's good souls and bad souls, and they're probably just as confused with each other. And the souls are trying to get more power, and then there's good souls that are trying to stop them from getting power. And the last section is building the colony. And the colony is uh, construction and things going on. And I'm making a very long speech out of this. Sorry, guys. <laughs> so I'll, I'm almost done. Anyway, the building of the colony is the final piece. So it's a four-section piece. But I had it mapped out in my head, just the sections, just the general sections. And then I just imagined being there and do, doing those sort of things. I don't know how well I did. If, if people hear it, if they say, wow, this is really a nice piece, or if it just, yeah, it just sounds like bar talk unchained. But it was fun for me, and I enjoyed it, and a lot of experimentation with trying to get different orchestral sounds. So that, that's a long form to me. A long form is basically how much do you have to say. And I look at music that way, too. If you're just going to write to write something, write a short piece. If you have a lot to say, if it's a bigger subject, then it's a longer piece. And I don't know... If you can say symphonic writing is all long form or this or that, it could be a lot of little short stuff. I mean, if you look at some of Stravinsky stuff, call it long form, but really they're short little pieces, little dances, like Claudio said, composites. So I don't think it's a real hard definition, long form. Uh, and, and I think you guys are free to kind of make up your own minds what it is for you if it's a long form. But I'm sure that more of a, an academic person could say, well, TC, you're really just talking out of your butt. You don't know what you're talking about. Long form is this and this. Maybe so. But that's how I look at it. You're on this ride, living your lives and being so lucky to be able to write music that uh, I say spend more time making more statements and longer statements and write longer stuff. Mark Berkowitz wrote a piano concerto. That's definitely long form. He just loves to write. I don't think Mark, if, if Mark is here, I wish he was here because I would ask him to talk and we would all realize after about five minutes, he's got a lot to say because he keeps going. And that's how he is with music. He can keep going and keep going. And if you feel like you want to master the, um, the ability to write longer pieces, then I would say, why don't you just figure out that you have more to say about something and that you're going to say it musically and let music be your voice. It's Jiminy Cricket. Let your conscience be your guide. Let music be your voice, you know, for what it's worth. 
to me, it sounded, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded a lot like you constantly look for inspiration that gets the story going in an interesting way. Let's actually take that statement because that is a more abstract statement. But how do you do this? How do you translate that um, creative inspiration into actual technique? And this reminded me of something that I never did before you and I started Meta and that I've stolen 100% from you. And I, I admit that I did this. And I, I want to share this quickly. Up to that point where we started to um, compile the lessons and all the materials for the composition course, honestly, I never saw anybody gather a lot of material before the actual sketch, before the writing process happened or started. And I wasn't really clear about why you do this, why that is beneficial. I just observed those steps and I thought, okay, well, interesting ideas, musical ideas. And you came up with, I don't know, five pages of gathered materials sometimes. I didn't see 100% the value of that back then, right? But then I looked at the composition that came out of that and I was really impressed how you got to these fantastic ideas. And then with a little bit of a closer look, I realized this is actually bar 22 from your gathering. That is bar 26 from your gathering in a longer statement though, but still that's where the seed came from. And I realized you make your life easier in the later parts when you compose because you figure out a lot of the details and the background elements of the characters beforehand. So, for example, if you say this is my main motif, can be four notes or a three note motif, whatever, then um, you would go in and look at these three notes, change the order of them, change the register, put stuff around it. And it's not quite obvious in the beginning to see the value of that process. But once you get to telling the story, those elements almost fall into place naturally. And it's not that hard to create a two minutes composition, a four minutes composition even, or a 10 minutes composition out of five pages of gathering. It's not that hard. This is what the TNO section became later, more or less. That is why the TNO section consists of 40 to 60 pages sometimes per lesson. The whole process is included. The whole gathering, the whole sketching part. And this was the eye-opening thing to me that bridged from um, this rather abstract idea of, well, you have to stay creative and you have to stay inspired. Of course you do. But what does that mean technique-wise? How do I do that? And this was eye-opening to me. And I, I believe I never told you this, right? I, I, no, you never did. The only thing you told me, and it was in the very beginning, was that you used to be afraid to write for brass. And that then you would see some of the stuff that I did, and you, you just said, okay. And I don't think you've ever, ever been afraid since. But that was a lot of years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We've had some conversations back then. Also, there, there is an interview that you did. I tried to remember his name. He became the co-president of the union. That's Rick Baptist. Exactly. He was a trumpet player. He was, in, in fact, the first trumpet, the section leader of the yeah. brass section back then in the Los Angeles Hollywood Orchestra. And yeah. this was more or less your go-to person 
to talk to when it uh, came to your own brass writing. That is what I remember you, you told me back then. Yeah, I started out, I was pretty young. And very luckily, I was in front of a pretty good sized orchestra every week, sometimes twice a week. And Rick was the lead trumpet player. And man, when he walked into the studio, that's when everybody paid attention because there was no fooling around now. He's here. Great deal of respect. And I'm a little bit of a political person, just on the bright side of it. I, I realize the politics is the making of friends in the right places. And so I made a point to talk to Rick as much as possible. And we became really good friends. And I'll tell you, he saved me a lot of times when I was having to write fast and there was something funky in the brass section and he would find it immediately. He's in on the website. You guys can go listen to Rick talk about stuff. He let his office literally almost had every major film on it because he was in them all. So he, he collected poster. Unbelievable body of work. Talking about story, this also came to my mind while you were talking about the Planet Nine story. A few years back, I watched the first Harry Potter movie in theater. The movie, fantastic movie. I believe everybody's familiar with that. Then I kind of got out of the Harry Potter series and I came back to it was part number seven, I believe. I had no idea what was happening in between. I haven't watched any of those Harry Potter movies that happened in between. So I, I went to the cinema, right? I thought, okay, great, Harry Potter. I loved it. Ten years ago, it was fantastic. Let's see what changed. I got into the movie hall. They started the movie. Literally, the whole story was there are a bunch of kids running through the forest for two hours. And then they had a fight with this, I don't know what the name was, with this bad guy. This was literally the two-hour story. And I was so disappointed because I could summarize the story in two sentences right now, which means you said, if you don't have anything to say, then it's a boring story. And that is exactly what I remember from this part seven or eight, whatever it was. I don't know exactly. I can't even remember what the music was like. It probably was better than the story. Yeah, I understand. I think there's a lot more mediocrity than there is fantastic stuff being written and produced and all that. That's why our thrust should always be to be um, continually creative, to keep that going. And, and, you know, you don't have to be writing music to be creative. You can be creative in a million different ways. But if, if you're going to make your living composing, you want to be able to get the smallest little stimulus to be a giant creation. You learn how to make it interesting. And I think our job at Mita is to instill freedom in all of you guys that are studying, you know, musical freedom, the freedom of vision, meaning that you can see creation in the slightest little thing. It doesn't have to hit you over the head to be creative. I mean, I can walk out of my house and going down the steps and I see two ants big black ants, and they're carpenter ants, right? So my first gut feeling is that, wow, well, those guys are bad. They're going to eat my house, but then they're fighting. And then I'm watching them fight. And I say, well, I've never watched ants fight before. Let me see, how do they fight? Are they fighting fair? 
is one guy on the <laughs> bottom get, getting his ass kicked. And, and so now I'm in the creative zone. I'm just observing this. And the next thing I know, I'm writing a piece of music in my head while I'm swimming about two ants that fought. It just let yourself be free in your life. You got to celebrate all the time, no matter when it is. And let people feel that because if their day gets a little bit better because of something you said, wow, that's great. More power to you. We can all be that as me to people because we're striving for it. Most people never even think about, well, you know, I could work on being creative today. They're not really even thinking that way. That, this is something you can develop. I mean, connection to the creative pool, you can develop your path to it. We give you the techniques, and those techniques are designed to take your focus, make you relax into working stuff out that you don't really have to think. You're just working it out. And as you work it out, you hear something, and then pretty soon you're writing. That's it. You know, if you're just going to go sit down at the piano and expect to start writing beautiful pieces, sometimes you will. The seed of that idea, if it turns out really great, didn't really come to you when you were actually sitting on the piano. You were probably driving to go pay a parking ticket or something, and, and hmm. something came in your mind, and then you had to wait till you got back to the piano to work it out. Hmm. So I, I just say every day, wake up and be happy that you're existing and that you have the luck to be a creative person and music is your way of expressing yourself. And it'll grow. If you do that, if you practice that, just like playing tennis or exercising, you'll get better and better at it. Pretty soon it'll drive you nuts because everything you see, there's a story there, you know. I think that sometimes there is confusion between form and a long piece of, of music. Sometimes we think a symphony is a long piece. Haydn wrote more than 100 symphonies, as most of them are less than 20 minutes long. So they are not compared to the modern symphonies or, or the late Romantic symphonies. So probably there is also these things that can be a confusion. Wanting a challenge in writing a, a classical form doesn't mean necessarily to write a long piece. Or vice versa, Brian Eno wrote uh, a single piece of music that uh, lasts for minutes, hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, but I, I believe that is actually key. Form is great if you want to follow a structure and everything. And it can be interesting, of course. But the problem with that is there are so many pieces that want to follow a form and are not interesting to listen to. And then it's still boring music. I don't want to say bad because this is judging already, but it's not interesting. So form is just a tool. It is just a tool that helps you understand what you did. And every movie script follows a form. There is always an arc and there are different chapters in a movie. Always, of course. That is what storytelling is. The concept of form, I mean, what uh, you know, talking about form in, in writing, I've been studying privately with a composer here in New York for the past not quite a year and you know one of the things that we've been discussing considerably is traditional classical form sonata form liturnello rondo all of the elements coming into form and i can understand i can see that in a film type situation or a media type situation that doesn't necessarily fit because of the arc of the story the storyline so i'm Right now, between studying the Mita method and then studying with a traditional composer, 
I'm like working very hard to reconcile both sides of that, <laughs> lift one another. I, I'm basically schizophrenic right now. But one of the questions that, that I have for both you, Frank, and TC is how much does traditional form or traditional considerations of form come to play for you as a writer? You know, not necessarily at this point, but in your early development as a media composer, how much of the friction was there between your understanding of form and understanding the tradition versus what the gig actually called for? Since all of the clients that paid me have no education in music theory, they just care about the emotion and the product. And if the product is successful, you are being successful and you get hired again. Obviously, if you bring in a healthy dose of AABA in your main titles, for example, it becomes more sticky to the audience. And then this is a good thing because you want the audience to walk out of the movie theater whistling the main title. Then you have done something right. So all of these things like Sonata form, Rondo form, those are great for you to have in your arsenal if you want to, let's say, bring in a little bit of variation in a queue and you are not quite sure how to do this. Just pick any of those forms and you have something to work with. But nobody is going to recognize that. They'll recognize it subconsciously, won't they? Maybe. They, they have form to me, It it's for a musician, it's, it's a blueprint, right? It's something that we can control depending on the story one or tell, but for an audience, they may recognize the AABA form, but they might not be able to articulate exactly what it is, but they'll know, wait a minute, you know, if you didn't follow the AAB form, but you set up the two A's, they're expecting a B, even though they don't realize it. I mean, where's the chorus? So it's like in architecture, the main mantra is form follows function. So the function dictates the form you're going to use. If you're producing tracks for production music, usually the form is just a simple ABA. You, do, you still do have form, you still need a form, and you still have to have an understanding of form. It's just that you're not using like the classical motifs of form, the classical archetypes of form, like you were saying, Frank, you know, Rondo. Or, so yeah, form, to me, form is still like important. And as you've insinuated, as a musician, know and understand form and what it gets to things, the emotional reactions that you can get to using particular forms and decide when you actually need to use those forms or not. I see them as a very practical, supportive element. Because if I don't know what to do, then you know, a chromatic line is my go-to device. But if you package that into a form everybody knows, like the AABA, for example, then um, you get to a result even quicker without working too hard on that. So I see it as an advantage, obviously, knowing these things as a composer, because you can pick and choose and put these things into your arsenal and get to the music quicker. I think that the problem is more for the composer. If you want to plan a sonata and use a sonata for five minutes of cartoon or movie that you have to deliver tomorrow, Probably sonata is not the right form because it requires a lot of effort, a lot of planning, and probably you spend more time on this than on, on writing music if you have a short delivery. Clearly. Plus, do you even get enough time in underscore moments like that to even like get through a form? You might have what, like 12 seconds, 15 seconds or something like that? I mean, yeah, how fast yeah. can you get through a sonata form in 15 seconds? <laughs> yeah, I can. <laughs> the connection to function. That is for sure, to me, the biggest point here. 
And again, it is tied to practicality. Whatever type of form you pick, it almost always suggests contrast. You, you may actually have multiple A's, but uh, in variations, classical composers used to do that a lot. Mozart, for example, did that. Like you have A, then A1, A2, back to A1, for example. So you may have repetition of A's, but those are varied themes. Yeah. And that is, that is key, which again is a blueprint or even shortcut for a composer, since that form can make you feel more creative in a way, since you know exactly, okay, I have to fill up the A section here and I have something for A in mind already. So let's go into a completely different direction in the B section to create contrast to that. Then the only question is, okay, how to tie these things into the story given to you? And then we talk about orchestration and this can also add another layer of contrast. So you can still have your sketch completely in repetition underneath a five-minute scene and vary the orchestration quite a bit. Then we talk about Bolero, <laughs> right? This is the, the same bars over eight minutes, but it's interesting to listen to. You can absolutely have the, the repetition in there, but still it won't be a copy-paste. Uh, I want to go back, talk directly to John because your question was the relevance of classical forms and uh, you're caught in between the intervallic thinking and classical forms, which are gen generally diatonic. Um, I would say, for my personal experience, I have never once worried about form because most, I'd say 99% of the work that I did, the form was the picture. And I would just follow the picture, and that was my form. The picture builds, and they wanted to build, then I would build it into my form. Or if a character came back, I would have a theme for the character, and I would integrate that. So A, A, B, A, it's never been something I worried about unless I was writing a song. If I'm actually writing a song or doing something like that, then I would, do, that's more pop. I, yeah, I guess classical guys did that too. But to me, I didn't really have a lot of use for learning how to write sonatas. Or I did write a couple of string quartets. But I try to have repeat sections when I feel I'm ready for it. Or when I think I've heard enough of that, then I want to go to something else. So from an academic point of view, I think studying forms is a good thing. But I think as an overall composer, you should spend more time composing and basically describing what's going on in your life and in your head and in the story. And that's why most of the course, all the bigger pieces, at the top of the score is a story, just bullet points in a story. And so you have to spend as much time developing your creative spirit as you do worrying about forms and stuff like that because you're a seasoned saxophone player so you're a pretty free spirit i would ask you what is it you want to do how do you want to spend your life do you want to compose in classical forms and that sort of stuff or do you just want to know what they are for the academic sake of it unless you're going to do something like the greatest showman that type of a musical and the main song in that, Never Enough, that's kind of an, an A-B 
there's not really the same form. I mean, the song is limited. There's only a couple of verses in that song. And okay. But it's an absolutely amazing performance. And John Debney didn't write that song. He did the background score. So maybe he orchestrated it. I'm not sure. I don't know. I guess I'm a little irreverent to worry about getting stuck in trying to copy something that's already been done for hundreds of years. That's my personal taste. I'd want to go into space. You know, I really, <laughs> I, I want to be free and write stuff that's different. I don't want to do stuff like John Cage did. You know, he puts a bunch of nails in a piano. But you know what? That was creative. He became famous. I guess he's the guy that did the nails in the piano. Yes. If I was the owner of that piano, I'd be pretty pissed. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> There's actually a science behind that. Uh, called, it's called prepared piano, and you should be quite knowledgeable about how to approach that. It's a very tricky thing to do, actually. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it is. It's very tricky also, you know, to, to do almost anything great. My path is just to figure out, continue to figure out who I am and try to give more than I take. And that's the spirit of Mita. So for you, John, I would say just write a lot. If you want to study forms, try to write in those forms. But I'll tell you what you should also try to do is write a little story in your head. So I got up today and I'm going to make breakfast with my wife. And my wife's a crazy person. I went out into the kitchen and she, she was cracking eggs. And it was like three dozen eggs. And I'm thinking, what the hell is she doing <laughs> cracking three dozen eggs? Oh, honey, didn't you know we have raccoons on the back porch? And I wanted to feed them. I like raccoons. Do you? No, honey. They're very dangerous. And they carry rabies. The music <laughs> swells and gets scary at the moment. So it's a matter of being living your life as a creative spirit. And form is, is going to be what you make it. It's going to be John form. But my personal writing that I've done for my band, for other bands, you know, I'm coming up through 40 years of living in New York in the, the jazz and commercial music scene. Form is tyranny in some ways especially, you know, in a very traditionalist, you know, kind of way. As a friend of mine famously said, you know, tradition is peer pressure from dead people. Uh, <laughs> this, is, this is fantastic. We need t-shirts with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But to your point about narrative and about, uh, you know, about the, the idea of writing to a story or to a theme, you know, I have pieces that I wrote for my daughter when she was, you know, really, really little that were inspired by her bipping and bopping around the living room when she was like three years old. You know, I have a current crop of pieces that were written for our two new kittens that we call the Skittles and their, <laughs> their antics around the house, you know, inspired some things, you know. Yeah. Um, you know. So I absolutely get the idea of taking a narrative from, you know, your experience or from your life, letting that ferment into a musical idea and then translating that musical idea into a piece of music. The place that I'm stuck is that, you know, I am studying with a classical composer who has a very specific idea about the methodology and progression of music from the 1600s on, which we can all look at and we can all 
sit down and analyze Juskan and, and through Prokofiev, through Stravinsky, through John Cage, and can see the evolution of the progression of harmony and form and you know development in music. But to your point with film writing or you know media writing, the narrative is being told by the visual. And so your job is to support the visual. Whereas someone like Mozart, say, was writing in sonata form or writing within the form of his period and his time, and he was in charge of telling the story. So the narrative was coming directly from his organization of the music within that form. Whereas you could argue that the form of what you're writing is the vision there. And so I'm just caught in the middle between those two studies. <laughs> yeah, but the well, purpose well, is different, actually, because uh, when we are talking about classical, traditional classical form, those pieces are meant to be played at concert. Those are concert pieces. And we are talking about film here. So the intention behind the music is completely different for, the, for those two. So when we are talking about movie, we are much more limited because a movie dictates what, what's going on. So we cannot think, oh, I want to uh, develop my bridge between A and B here. You can't because something is happening on the screen and you are very limited by that. But if you have a concert piece that you want to write, then you have much more freedom to, to decide about your uh, form. And when you mentioned the evolution of the, of the classical tradition, uh, very big part of that is actually uh, breaking the form uh, of the composer that, that came previously. Form is a big part when it comes to concert writing, but not as much when it comes to media composing. Of course. But I think yeah. that the discussion, it began with the idea of like, how do you extend a piece from something small to something large, right? And obviously you can use form as like a potential tool to like, ex to extend something from small to large. TC spoke earlier about the idea, no, it was Frank who sort of mentioned the idea of gathering a bunch of material that he said he learned from TC that became- well, I, I like, said I've stolen really, that from yeah. TC. Stolen yeah, for the record. I think you're stolen. give you the benefit of the doubt there. You did say stolen. But yeah, I think, <laughs> I, 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 well, like, I, you know, having like worked with like, you know, media techniques for a while now, I definitely would second like the idea of like going through the, the process of gathering much more than you actually need for writing the piece until you find you need some more material and you find it back in the gathering. So like the initial ideas, which may be, uh, you know, a four note chain could be extended into like a 20 minute piece just from the techniques that Mita like affords you, the way that you can just reimagine the possibilities of those four notes. So for me, I think really the idea of how would I take something small and turning it into something large would begin with the gathering and not necessarily with the form. Although I may want to like put it together in a form so that it seems, so it doesn't seem formless. The key is like the gathering. And probably having a story because uh, that is also what uh, classical music teach. Because up to a certain point, uh, every composer were just composing concert number two, number three, symphony number two, number three. From a certain point, uh, that changed. And there was composer writing planets, writing Sherazade, writing something that was no more strictly tied to a form, locked, locked in a form. Often they are called uh, symphonic suites uh, for this reason. But you understand that behind, uh, 
there is a story. For me, Sherazad, that is a masterpiece because when you hear it, you see the story, you see the, 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 the sailor and was so well told in music. Uh, that, that's fantastic. And the same is Planets. So there was also in, in the classical, the necessity in the classical time, the necessity to to get out and having a real story rather than just uh, writing the next symphony, just to have it. Uh... Yeah, also, like even Mozart, he liked to do those operas, you know, where challenged the singers and he did all kinds of stuff that there was always humor in his writing in some way. That's why he's the life of the party, <laughs> you know, P play the piano upside down. Uh, let's give everybody a visual and an audio. And John, if you find yourself in between two, because this is something you said to me before, where you're finding yourself, how does it all work? I have to tell you, you don't even need to worry about that. I know that sounds flippant, but and I don't mean it that way, because I think you're a serious musician, you're searching. And if you want to put it in a form, a classical form, you'll be able to do that. It, it isn't either or. That's a hard thing for people thinking diatonic or intervallic. You're right. growing in different ways. And I guarantee if you get through the, the TNO series in the course and you stay with your uh, instructor for another couple of years, you'll be writing things and he's going to ask you to teach him. And I know he went to Juilliard and he's, he has a lot of knowledge. And he could teach me a million things, I'm sure. But I am also, it, learning goes both ways. And you're studying something that is, it's a new way to think musically. You know, you've got the classical and the um, diatonic stuff pretty much under your belt. You're learning more about forms and stuff like that. And you want to practice that. But you're studying something that is really out of the box. And as you get into it, you're going to realize more and more, wow, I never thought of that before. And it isn't because Frank and I wrote it. It's the collection of 50 years of note-taking, of intervallic thinking. And I don't even know how I got on that path other than I got on it. And then I was forced to write fast, and it had to be good, and it had to be a little bit different. The whole meta process in working with Frank for almost eight years now, I think, I would have an idea and then he would compliment it and add to it. And then I would see and I, oh, yeah, that also we could do this. So it's a very rare uh, stroke of luck that we met each other, that we got along, that we had similar interests. And what you're studying in Mita is not really ever going to address form. It's going to be your form and you're going to apply it in any way you want, but you'll have a, so many different ways to look at things that you're never going to be stuck. And if you do the gathering and then the sketching uh, and then the development, if you really get that down using techniques, you'll never have writer's block. And I firmly believe if, if all of us do that, you're going to end up being free. And that's the idea. You know, if I said, Okay, John, here we go. Give me a 10-minute speech on talking about the saxophone. I want a little history. I want a little references. Go. You could do it. 
Why? Because you've gathered so much information. You wouldn't be limited to 10 minutes. And that's the idea is to have enough techniques that you're gathering. It ends up being fun. And once it's fun, you're connected to the creative pool and you start getting musical ideas and then you're moving on to sketching and maybe you go back to gathering and then the sketching. Then the development is a blast. You don't have to be either or you don't have to connect these. They're going to connect automatically. It's all going to happen automatically. And I wouldn't waste one ounce of energy in worrying about if you may be studying something that isn't going to be relevant, you'll find out. Don't even remember how I fell down the rabbit hole of Mita. This system of organization and structural methodology towards writing, towards opening up creative possibilities, has energized my interest and curiosity about music in a way that it hasn't been in 30 years. Frank and I listen to what you guys say. John and I had a Zoom session, and kind of at the end of the session, he said to me, he says, so what does me to do about rhythm? And I gave him a, I gave him an answer that he probably thought, what a jerk. Uh, because, <laughs> because I said, yeah, listen to the birds. That's what I told you, remember? Yeah. Yep. And you said, you know, I kind of get what you mean by that. What came out of that for me is I'm now trying to write some ukulele lessons that are really simple using flamenco style playing for ukulele. And so I started looking at some of the different rhythms and I immediately thought of you. And I thought, oh, this is great. Okay, I'm gonna have fun with this. What birds do you have there, TC? Yeah, I know. Some of them are <laughs> mocking. Birds. Yeah, Spanish birds. So it's a lot of fun. And that's how creativity goes. You gave me something not even thinking about it. And I You're found welcome. my. I, I, yeah, thank you. You actually should have charged for that, John. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, trust me. Your hundred bucks. Anyway, I just thought you ought to know that. You ought, you ought to understand that this community is really something special as well. I had a Zoom call with Ian, and we talked about guitars and, and stuff, and I thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. Me too. Yeah. You guys all make us think because we get all kinds of interesting input back. Are you guys interested, actually, in uh, me throwing out those quick techniques that I usually yeah, go sure. to for long-form mm, content? Sure because these are more on the practical side. I want to start quickly from a macro perspective because it's easier to move into the micro later. So from a macro, as stated before, the longer a composition needs to be, the more of the time I spend with the gathering. This is almost proportionate. And this will make your life way easier later. The more stuff you have to pull from, the easier it will come to you later. Now this automatically to me, you know, being German, raised the question, how much gathering is enough? And I can also give you a pretty clear answer to that. It's not a feeling thing. I can tell you exactly what it is. To me, I have a rule of thumb. And that is pretty much, you see it in the sketch. Let me quickly explain what I mean. I try to write my sketch over the full length, even if it was 16 minutes. And then I split the sketch into the first 50 and the second 50. And I try to make the first 50% of my sketch as unique as possible. So not a lot of repetition in there. Unless I want to establish a main motif, then I definitely use something like ABA in the beginning for, let's say, the first two minutes or so. 
then I bring in something new. I might come back to my A section a few times, but try to make the first 50% as unique as possible because everything you can do in the second half of your sketch right now is referencing things that came before already in different order, in variations, like changing the orchestration a little bit here and there. If it's really long, like 30 minutes or more, then I will have something unique in the second half as well. Just a two minute, three minute section that didn't show up in the beginning. And I can also show you a, a technique how you can still plant a seed after the fact actually in the first half of your sketch so that it doesn't hit everybody with a surprise when you introduce something completely new later. But that now brings me to the micro perspective. So from the macro, I just split my sketch and then I treat the two halves differently. Now for the micro, I try to have at least a handful of motifs. And this is now the gathering. And I would try to adjust those motifs so that I can, in the worst case, also play all of them simultaneously. So now we are talking about the lesson three from the composition course. Have three lines that can coexist next to each other. If you slowed those things down and just play whole notes or type notes over two bars at 60 BPM and have another element show up on top that has a bit more energy, let's say, you will be surprised how far you can go with that as a little bridge section, for example. It's all connected to your main motif, which means that's technique and will give you a lot of minutes of music very quickly. Again, the only guideline here is no 13s between your lines. Out of these little fragments, I develop 8 to 16 bar elements. And those things will more or less be part of a form later. Of course, since I want to use those building blocks, I always talk about building blocks way more than A or B because this is associated with form automatically. If you just talk about those things as building blocks, they are more or less undefined and free in a way. So you can use them in a way broader sense. But then from these 16 bar segments, this is the moment where I start placing those things in the sketch. And then you start seeing where you need contrast. And you can have repetition in there. Like, for example, have your melody in the repetition of your 16 bars show up in the bottom range of the harmonic range, not on top of everything. And have the chord structures move on top and change the orchestration. In essence, it's a complete copy-paste of what you did, but with enough variation to it. And that is exactly what I would do in my sketch then. And some repetition in there, of course. Then I would absolutely do all of these things as quickly as possible, because I guarantee your brain will kick in and tell you, this is still boring, you need more stuff. This only happens because you most likely listen to these 16-bar segments for a long time, like two hours or so but that's not gonna be the experience that the audience will have later. Try to have the sketch finished as quickly as possible and then maybe even revisit this the next day. And you will see, well, actually it's not that bad. Yesterday I thought this is not that interesting, but it is. If you still feel that it became too repetitive or boring, then I would simply insert some black boxes in there. And this is also something that I've stolen from UTC. In your sketches, sometimes you have these eight bars of emptiness in there. And I always thought, wow, this is really bold because, you know, you have to fill this thing later. And you simply said, I will find something. Not a problem. I know what, what I do in the section before and I know where I want to go. So I don't really care about this intermediate eight bar part right here. It will more or less write itself when I get to the development. 
And in every case, you were right. <laughs> yeah. and this, this is a great technique. Be free and you don't have to know all the details. So leave in eight bars of emptiness if you think it's too repetitive. And we will use these eight bars very elegantly in a second. And then the question is how to fill those things. My go-to technique is always, I look at what I introduced as a new part in the second half of the sketch. And then I use that new element, reduce it to its core, and use just the core element as a seed in the first half of the sketch in this black box. Because then you can introduce a fraction of the melody, let's say, or a pattern or a motor that will come back later. And everybody will be happy when this shows up again, although it's a new section that you introduce in the second half. That is just playing with expectations and storytelling, like a side quest that opens in your big plot. And I would do it after the fact, actually. I would do it in reverse. So I would look at my full-grown tree first, and then I imagine the seed and put the seed in front of, you know, the full-grown tree and do it after the fact. This is way simpler and way quicker. You don't have to know these things the moment you create these eight bars of emptiness. It will fill <laughs> itself. This is really, again, one of the, the things. I need to write a book, TC, things that I've stolen from my partner. That's going to be the, the title. Wow. I'm glad that's working out. I've always done that. Mostly, I think that came from just not wanting to be stuck. Leave myself some space here and keep going with the next idea. And as soon as you do that, what happens? You've got the next idea and all this space. Huh. I know I want to ride up to that line because that's where that next idea starts. So it's, you can almost reverse engineer yeah. your composition. And then everybody wonders, how did you write these wonderful transitions into all the parts? <laughs> the answer is in reverse. It's not really that hard if you know where you want to move into and then you just do it stepwise in reverse. Yeah, that's really true. If you enjoy this content, then please do me just one favor. Share this podcast with a friend or on social media. It will help us attract more like-minded guys like you to the Meta community and that would mean the world to me and I truly appreciate your efforts. Have a wonderful day and we will surely catch up in one of the future episodes. This was Frank. Bye. This podcast is powered by the Music Interval Theory Academy, your resource for getting clarity and confidence in music composition and orchestration. See you inside at musicintervaltheory.academy.